Welcome to episode number 14 of About Nashville. I'm Mike Rogers. Uh, this is like uh, fanfare or, or uh, uh, CMA fest uh, to, to the comedian or the comic. Um, this week is huge for comedy in Nashville. Uh, in 2013, Vince Vaughn and his Wild West Productions, they set out to start a comedy festival like no other, and they did. Um, after they researched several cities, they, they finally set their sights on Nashville, and that's where they landed. Uh, they partnered up with Outback Concerts and Zany's Comedy Club, and they created the Wild West Comedy Festival. It's huge. It's big. And this is the third annual Wild West Comedy Festival going on this week. It, it features some of the funniest comedians in the world. And, and it's unique, and it's a special event, and it's great for the city. It goes on through May 16th through the 22nd. So uh, if you want to laugh or you want something funny going out there, I mean, guys, right now, to confirm, to perform, this week, Jeff Foxworthy, Joe Rogan, Maria Bamford, Russell Peters, Joe Carbonero, Damn, I can't even say that name. Uh, Miranda Sings, Trevor Noah, uh, Kevin Smith, and the Fighter and the Kid, and, and then there's there's tons more guys, tons. Uh, also, oh oh, also another great event, a big one for comedians that are that are going on in this town. Uh, it, it's called the Broken Record Show, and it goes on in the East Room. Guys, beginning at 5 a.m. on Sunday, May 15th, 2016, the Broken Bow, or Broken Bow, Broken Record Show, Volume 2, will continue through the entire duration of the Wild West Comedy Festival, just like it did last year. And for eight plus days, there will be 24 hours a day, non-stop stand-up comedy until May 23rd. That's crazy. I mean, how, how do they do it? I don't know, but they do it. it. It's last year they broke the world, the Guinness Book of World Records. This year they plan on doing it by five minutes. I, craziness. Craziness. Uh, the Broken Bow Record Show, volume number two, nonstop, eight plus days of scheduled uh, comedy will feature showcases, feature length uh, shows. It'll have headliners. Uh, it, it'll include surprise drop-ins from comedians of various levels of fame and fortune and infamy and misfortune. It, it, this is the brainchild of Na uh, Nashville comic uh, DJ Buckley. Uh, this recording, this record-breaking show is co-produced by Nashville-based comedians Chad Ryden, who was on the show last week, uh, Mary J. Berger, uh, and the East Room's Ben Jones. Guys, between Zanies and between the Municipal Auditorium and between... Uh, Vince Vaughn has brought all of us here. Chad Ryden, uh, Mary J. Berger, uh, uh, Zanies, uh, Ben Jones, uh, Outback. All, there, if you want to laugh, you need a laugh. This is a great week for it in Nashville to go out there and just laugh. Wow. That's, uh, sounds like I need to just hang up the microphone and go get some laughs. Um, today's guest is going to be singer, songwriter, actor, music producer, and elite dog trainer, Dean Miller, who just also happens to be an all-around good guy. Um, in, this, in, this, in this particular episode... Uh, we talk about persevering uh, for the you know for the love of the art. Uh, his high school prom date that went from uh, good to Breaking Bad, and uh, acting with James Gandolfini and Robert Redford, uh, the crimes of Michael Vick, and producing legends like Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. I mean, Dean is a really cool dude. He he, he was a great guy just to sit down and and have this conversation. And to be honest, this was a conversation I needed to hear at at just this time. I needed to hear this. I myself have tried my hand at many things in life, 
And many times I've failed. I've, I've failed to meet the aspirations I've had or my lofty goals that I've set in my mind. Or, and it's hard. It's hard emotionally. It's hard financially. When an artist goes out there to chase their dreams or, or pursue anything artistically, it, it just it, it makes it worse when people that you know or you barely know consider you a failure because you're not a household name. And, and I, I have struggled with this. I mean, uh, to be 100% honest, honest we, we, we've probably all got into some form of art to impress a girl, a boy, or a parent, or, or whatever, because we've had some kind of deep-seated need to be accepted on some level, I mean, to be recognized or to be loved. We all seek attention on some level. I mean, but I, I, maybe we just do it to help dissipate the feeling that we're not good enough or that we, that we carry around this burden of, of, of needing some kind of attention or, or whatever it is. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't care if you're Garth Brooks or Robert De Niro or whoever you may be. All artists want to be appreciated and noticed. I mean, I, I think that's why we all started in the first place. You know, I, I also believe that, you know, that it doesn't matter what, art, what kind of artist you are or whatever level you're on, you become hurt. You can become hurt when you're not accepted or you're appreciated. And, and, and you know, sometimes they, they even struggle when they, when they become irrelevant, especially after they've been relevant. Uh, I'm not saying that Garth and De Niro are, are, are irrelevant at this particular point because they're not. That they're not. They're, they are very relevant. And that wasn't the point that I was trying to make. What I'm saying is artists are humans and humans have feelings. And it doesn't matter how big you are or how small you are. We all pretty much feel the same thing. So I, it, it, I struggle. That's, that's, that's one of the struggles that I've, I, I myself have had, you know. There, there, there are also artists that make a living doing what they love, and you've never heard of them. You, you have no idea who they are. You don't know their name, what they look like. And that's okay. I, I would call them a, a success. You don't have to be rich or famous to be successful. That's, that's not right. Success is when, when, when you found happiness doing what you love in life, no matter what that may be. Don't let someone else's viewpoint of success dictate whether you see yourself as successful or not. If you're happy doing what you love, then you're successful. And if you're paying the bills and you're happy, then you're very successful. Don't confuse fame and fortune with success. It's not the same. It's just not. I actually had a person come up to me one time, and they actually said to me, you know, it's, it's obvious that the, uh, the music business didn't work out for you, so uh, now, now what do you plan to do? No, number one, number one, this guy has probably never gambled on a passion in his entire life, and it's probably just some miserable schmuck taking his anger out on life on me. Number two, I didn't fail at the music business. I stopped for over a decade because my son was having some problems and it was more important to me to be a better father to him than be a country singer for the world. That's a fact. Number three, you only really failed at anything in life when you quit, get back in, when you quit getting back up. I'm a fighter and I knew this and I do know this to be true. You only lose when you quit getting back up. How, how, how did I forget that? How? It just it blows my mind that something so simple to a fighter like myself could forget that if I'm down. 
just start counting to 10, because if I don't get back up, then I'm dead. I, I, I'm not... I'm not sitting here making some declaration or statement that I'm returning to country music as an artist or anything. I'm not. But if I was, if and if I and if that was the case, so what? But I'm not. We all deal with our own individual, you know, our inner struggles or our personal demons or whatever it is. That's hard enough for any artist to face itself. We don't need some corporate pariah telling us that we don't really exist. What we do is unimportant. If we're not known by everybody, then we're really just a nobody. That is false, people. That is not the way to nurture any form of art. It's the bully's way of busting up the artist's fragile ego and attempting to somehow crawl into their bruised psyche to make them want to quit because they're really just some kind of talentedless dreg hiding behind an overpaid executive title who wouldn't know real art from manure, which is why we're fed shit most of the time. I've got one of those dregs that stalks me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever I may show up. I started this podcast as a creative outlet, and I thought, hey, <laughs> I would be free of this, this ridiculous pettiness once and for all because it's just a podcast. I can just go out there and I can talk to people. But after all these years, they're still following me, every move. I make and every every they're listening to every word I say. And 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 this person is starting to now follow my friends on Twitter that they've never even met before. How crazy is that? I can't get away from this person. I can't eradicate them completely out of my life. It would be like amputating my infected arm. But the problem is I love my hand. I love my hand too much to do that, and I, I won't do it. I block them from everything, you know, but they, they still can create fake accounts or whatever else. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. All I can say is I guess I'm not a nobody to them because they care about what I do. And, but you know what? So do all the listeners out there that are, that are listening to the show. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me rant. And thank you for taking the time to listen to my talented guests. I appreciate you out there. I know that you're listening. And it means a lot to me. Doing this and knowing that you appreciate it means a lot to me. Now here's the conversation I had with Dean Miller. Let's do this thing. Dream big! The honky tonk hit man. Welcome to AboutNashville.net with your host, the honky tonk hit man, Mike Rogers.
<clears throat> first thing, start of the call. <laughs> Get it all it's up. all live. <laughs> all right, so what have, what have you been up to lately? Oh my gosh, my life is like a, a circus. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I call myself a recovering artist. <laughs> I, uh, I was a singer and songwriter. I, can't, I came to Nashville to try to be Elvis, you know. And um, as someone once said, I hit the big time and bounced right off. <laughs> um, I have had 10 lifetimes in one, but um, in my Nashville incarnation, I came here to be a singer and a songwriter. And um, I have had every kind of record deal, every kind of publishing deal. I added up one day, I've had 10 separate publishing deals that I was signed to at 10 different companies oh, wow. over the time that I've been here. Um, and then I've, uh, I've had three, two major label record deals and one, excuse me, independent deal. And um, all of them have been hor horrible, horrible business I mean, I could just tell you nightmare stories. Oh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard them on, right. on the show. It's like, yeah, it's like, really? Yeah, you can, you can, you know, people think, they come to Nashville and they think, I just want to get a record deal. I don't know. There's like some fantasy of what a record deal means. Right. I don't know what that means to people outside. From my experience, I've been through the mill, but I guess from the outside, it looks like that's the grand prize. What do you know? think it means anymore? I mean, because it's um, obviously different. Yeah, the... I think now it means very little. Um what what we're all looking for is um, somebody to invest in us and believe in us mm -hmm. and then make as many people as they can listen to that. It used to be, in, in my opinion, it used to be four or five labels owned the way music got released into the world. They mm -hmm. owned the manufacturing of records. They owned how tapes were put out. They owned the radio. They didn't own the radio stations, but... It's kind of like the mafia. They know the radio guys and they sure. call each other. And the only way it gets on the radio is who knows who and who pays who and all that stuff. But as the Internet has grown and blown up, that's become less and less important or viable. Right. Um, but it's still, in country music especially, radio and the record labels have some power to mm. really make something happen. But in this day and age, it, it feels like television is more powerful than radio. Right, right. Do you say, do you, that, I would agree with that. I mean, hell, right. we're looking at a, a, a possible president that's, that's just, right. the, just the, that, that, the power of, of television. The result of television. Right. I mean, I heard someone say last night, um, I was listening to Jon Stewart in an interview, and I thought this was amazing. He said that um, on CNN, they will let the, the news scroll on a podium that's empty saying Donald Trump will be out in just a minute to speak because that gets more viewers and ratings than actual news. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That is just nuts. Right. So they will keep that rolling and talk about it because putting on a story about a murder or a war or something does not keep viewers. Well, when do you when do you think that started? Was it the whole Kardashian thing or was it before that? Or, or? I think it all comes down to money. I think it's who... Advertisers want to buy time on something that has thousands of people watching it, millions right. of people watching it. So has it always been that way, or do you just think it's just gotten it's I think exacerbated? It's, or, yeah. yeah. Well, it feels like I, you know, I think it, it's always been a dance of art and commerce and whatever, but it's now just commerce. It's just commerce. It's just how do we make money? How do we get? And there's so much competition because. In my opinion, when the Beatles started, for example, mm -hmm. there was one channel with Ed Sullivan on it and the whole country was watching. Right, And right. that's why the Beatles were so huge. Or not the only reason, but that's a major reason why they exploded like they did. Right. But when you have 600 channels and unlimited internet and every kind of YouTube and every... People are splintered in a million different directions. Right. So trying to get people to focus on one thing is, is more difficult. So now people... 
are desperate to get people to focus on one thing. I think they're desperate to get viewers and listeners and whatever to look at this one thing and focus on it because then advertisers want to buy time on it. So just by hearing that, so in your viewpoint, so the whole changing of the dynamic, this whole, this whole tectonic shift that's happening. Tectonic. Oh my goodness. You have big words. (laughs) (laughs) I had a little bit of scoop. I'm like like Kenny Powers. It's a little bit red. Okay. Big words. Okay. Uh, um, so, uh, so this whole shift that's happening with inside uh, the music role and the music business and everything yes. else. You, you, so you're you're taking it one step further, and you're saying no, that 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 whole shift that you're seeing is happening all the way across media. I think so because media is uh, is blurred now. It's you know, I you know, I started noticing this maybe eight or ten years ago. My my brother and sister are half my age, mm-hmm. so I've always been. Um, tapped into this kind of generational gap there, someone who was in the gap showing me every day how it was changing. Sure. And I remember watching my brother watch television with his laptop on his lap and his phone in his hand. And I thought, that's the beginning of the nightmare because the commercial comes on for one second. He's online looking at something. Then somebody texts him. He texts that person. Then he's over here doing FaceTime or Skype or whatever. And he's up over here doing this thing. And it's like our brains are just fractured. It's, right, right. I don't believe we were designed for this much input. I, I agree. It's like it's like social media has made us unsocial. Yeah. It's disturbing to me. I was in a restaurant last night and I looked around and I watched all the tables of people not looking at each other, not talking to each other, staring down at their phones, a whole family out to dinner, and no one's looking at each other or talking to each other. That is the oddest yeah. thing. Yeah. A, a, a whole family out to dinner, so right. they're making it an occasion. That's right. That's and, right. And, and and yet, they still can't find the time with inside themselves to put the devices down That's right. and give somebody some one-on-one attention. Right. That is nuts. It, and it is, it's just it's like the beginning of, of, uh, of, of the whole... Uh, Terminator thing. Yes, you know, yes. machines are taking over. It's true. It's a, it's an addiction too. I mean, I, I was reading an article about how it's not just that we're looking at something or that it's interesting. It's the doing of it that becomes addictive, like holding a cigarette or chewing gum, or it's just a physical thing you become addicted to. So anytime we feel a lull or a time we're quote unquote bored, mm-hmm. we like I I do it too. This is terrible. I pull up to a stoplight and I check my phone. And it's like that's just sick. That's, uh, that's yeah. sick, you know. Yeah, and I and I and I, I gotta admit, I am I'm inc- I'm incredibly obsessive compulsive. So like, if I put something out there, I'm immediately wanting to know right. how many people like it. You know, how do what are you, are you, are, do you have an argument on it? Right. I need to debate it. Do which, I need to... which feeds the idea of where is our self worth coming from? Is our, are we are we dependent on everybody? How many likes? And if you don't like me enough, then I'm no good. And, right, right. You know, I'm starting to know what women feel like when they look at fashion magazines <laughs> and they go. I'm not so beautiful. I don't look like that because I don't get as many likes as this person. You know. Oh man, that it's, is that's that is crushing. Though. It's crushing. No, and then and then I started this thing the other a, a few months ago where I just was I caught myself and said you're an idiot, but. I was getting mad because I was thinking the people on my Facebook were responding to the wrong things and not enough to the right things. <laughs> and I started thinking, what is wrong with you people? This, this is an important issue and you need to look at this and stop looking at this silly stuff over here. And what is happening? So how did, how did they respond? I didn't. I, well, I said something. I, it's like going, 
I mean, really, honestly, what am I going to do? Go educate the whole public? Am I going to change everyone's mind about everything? I mean, it's stupid. It's a little corner of Facebook with a few people looking at it, and I'm going to get mad because they're not responding to what I tell them to respond to. That's ridiculous. What is wrong with me, you know? We, we take it really seriously. I think it's like our little corner of show business or something that we can control. You know, I don't know. Yeah, now, that part about it is, too, it is the one thing, probably the only thing that we can control, or mm-hmm. we think that we can, right? mm-hmm. but, you know, and in, 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 in retrospect, we probably have zero control of anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, speaking of show business, yes. you started off in California, right? Man, how do you know that? Yes. Um, I, was, uh, I was born, this is, uh, I mean... I'm going to try to give you a condensed version, but I was born into show business. My father was Roger Miller, known for the song King of the Road and Big River and a bunch of other things. Um, so I was born into show business and born in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and I had a tumultuous childhood moving back and forth from California to Texas where my mother lived. Then we moved to New Mexico. I grew up, I spent high school in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And then... Um, when I was 17, I got out of high school early and I moved to California to become a quote-unquote star. I think I had a weird thing in my head that I had to be a star, but I thought there's no way anybody's going to listen to my music because, you know, my dad is this huge thing. Sure. So I was a closeted songwriter from the time I was 13 or 14 years old. But, you know, when you grow up in my household, you you write your first song and you take it to your parents and they go well, the bridge needs some work and that lyric isn't right. And, you know, you're singing flat on this part. And, yeah, and you, so when people are supposed to be going, yay, you're so good, they're, uh, you're feeling totally squashed. You oh, know? yeah. So I kind of kept it all to myself and I was kind of closeted about it. But in college, I started playing with a band. And um, there were, I found these guys who loved country music, and we were the only people that I knew in L.A. who even liked country music. Did you share your, your, your songs with your parents? Uh, uh, I did, but, you know, I, I kind of hid it for a while. Okay. I sort of hid it for a while. And, um, and then I was in this band in college, and I was writing these, you know, funny songs and stuff for my friends. And I was talking to this guy in the band, and I said, I, he said, do you ever write serious songs? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but I could never show them to anybody. I, <laughs> and it was just something I had in my head. And he said, why not? And it's so stupid, but he said, why not? And I thought, yeah, why not? What, I, once I said it out loud, I thought that it can't hurt anything. So I started playing them for everybody and... Um, I mean, to be brutally honest, I, I found that it was impressing some girls. So yeah, well, went, hey, yeah. <laughs> that's what gets us all into it. Yeah, so I went, man, I found it. So I started taking it more seriously. The guys in the band were taking it less seriously. The, the band thing kind of fell apart. But I kept going. I kept going. I kept going. And then I was acting. I, I, I kind of skipped over that. But I was doing acting in California because um, I thought, well, I can be in show business, but I'm not a... You know, I can't do the songwriting thing. So I was in a play in California, and I met this guy who was, uh, his brother was a huge songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy's name was um, Steve Sharp. His brother's name was Randy Sharp. And, and he had worked his way into a, jo- a potential job at then Arista Records in Nashville. And um, he was getting this job and acting. And I thought, There's, I didn't know anybody who was doing country music and acting. Right. And so I thought, this is me. So um, he said, well, I'm going down to Nashville for fanfare for a week. Um, you should go down and hang out and I'll introduce you to whoever I know. Because people assume I grew up in Nashville, that I knew everybody because my dad, you know, was Roger Miller. But I didn't know anybody here because my dad never lived here the whole time I was growing up. 
Where'd he live? He lived in L.A. and then New Mexico, L.A. Okay. and Santa Fe. And we'd come here for him to do business, but I didn't grow up here. I didn't know people. Mm-hmm. Did you ever live in New Mexico? Um, I did. I lived in Santa Fe all through high school. Okay, I okay. went to high school there and some college. And um, But when I came to, to Nashville, I came to Nashville the same time this guy was going to be here because I thought, I'll come clean, you know. Nobody will know I'm Roger Miller's son, and, <laughs> and I'll just meet everybody through this guy and, and try to hustle something. So I made this three-song demo. Mm-hmm. I came here for five days. And, of course, he kept introducing me. This is Roger Miller's son. So, of course, it, you know, then it became something different. But I was handing these cassettes out. Cassettes, that's how old I am. I'm very old. Um, and I was handing out cassettes to everybody I'd meet just because I didn't know any better. And I got back to L.A., and four days later, this guy called me and said that, uh, Joe Galani was the president of RCA at the time, and he said he would like to meet you about talking about a record deal. And I thought, four days in Nashville, or four days out back out of Nashville, and I've already got a record deal? Yeah, I thought, this is easy stuff. So, <laughs> so I go down here, and I come here for a couple of days, and I, you know, I, I think I'm going to be this hot shot, get a record deal like that. And he totally passes and says, I don't think you're ready for a record deal yet. Oh, wow. And, he, and so it was my first kick in the gut. You know, oh, we love you, we hate you, we yeah, love you, we hate you, right? Yeah. So I, but it was enough for me to go, well, I think I can do this because if this guy thought it was good enough to at least fly me here and try sure. to talk to me, then it, it, I could probably do it. So I moved here and thus became this lifelong love, love, hate relationship with the music <laughs> right, business, right. you know, um, I was here about four years. I got my first development deal on Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. I went through three different presidents of the label there. I went through the Garth Brooks era. I was there three years where they kept making me cut stuff, saying they were going to put my record out, never put it out. Mm. You know, finally, you know, they just dropped me after three years. Then I'm floating around for three or four years. Then I get another development deal on MCA. They move me to another label called Universal South. They shuffle me around. They make records. It never comes out. You know, this is years of my life going by while I'm in these deals. So you're not going to remember this, but uh, the first time I ever met you was 1993. Ooh, how do you Uh, remember that? uh, Because I'm weird with, I'm weird with numbers and dates. And and, so in 1993, uh, Pat McMakin. Oh yeah, Pat McMakin. uh, he, He took me to your showcase at 12 and Porter. Oh, embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so I went to that showcase and that I've was... practiced since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you kind of introduced me to, in the midst of that, uh, you you closed with Long White Cadillac. Oh, you did? Okay. And, and uh, it was like, I, I remember hearing that song and I looked at Pat and I said, oh my God, that is an awesome song. Did he write that? And he goes, no, that's, that's a Dwight Yoakam song. And then that's when I started studying that Dwight Yoakam didn't even write that song. That's right. Uh, and, and, and anyway, it went down that path. But that was a long way to get around there. But um, that was the first time that I actually ever met you. And, and uh, um, was that when you came to live here? Or were you just, just about passing? that time? I had to come um, maybe a, a couple of years before. And then my father got sick. And I, I just left town and took care of my dad for about a year and a half. And then I came back um, kind of a false start. Then I came back and really came back at it. Um, but that was about the time that I was relentless. I had a whole, like, I, I probably bothered so many people, but I was determined to get a record deal. And um, I was relentless about it. And so your birth name is Roger Dean Miller Jr. That's right, man. What do you, you do your research. Okay, yes. So, 
so you you um, did you purposely not go by the name Roger Miller Jr. on purpose? No, the day I was born, my parents said he'll be Dean because we'll be confused around the house. So it's we're gonna call him Dean. <laughs> and uh, but um, the interesting thing is that my dad had seven kids from three marriages. Um, I'll draw a graph for you later if you like to, <laughs> to, to look. Um, but I'm a middle kid, and he chose me to give his full name to, and none of the other kids got that, so I feel blessed in that way. But I'm also the only one out of seven who plays music, looks exactly like him, um, has kind of a sense of humor and his skewed look at life, and I think I got all the blessings. Were you the, were you the firstborn? No, I'm the middle kid. I'm a middle kid. I'm, oh, okay. I'm the fourthborn. Okay. I'm the fourthborn. And you are right there in the middle. Right in the middle. Wow, mm-hmm. wow. Um, so when you, when you, tell me about, well, there's a couple things. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you graduate high school from? Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's called Santa Fe Preparatory School. I had a graduating class of 36 people, four girls. Imagine how frustrating my life was. Absolutely. <laughs> I live with three girls. So. Perfect. Okay. Uh, but I mean, four girls out of 36, it was like, uh, you know, it was like a wolf feeding frenzy or something, you know? So who'd you take to prom? Oh, this is a great... Do you know this story? I do. How do you know this story? I, I'm just... I, you know, hey, I do my, do my this work. This is totally cool that you know this story. Okay, this is a very bizarre thing. Um, I went to prom with a girl named Anna Gunn, and Anna Gunn later became the star of a show called Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. She played the wife of Brian Cranston on Breaking Bad. But we went to high school together, and I had a huge crush on her. And I thought she would never go to the prom with me, but she actually asked me to go to the prom with her. So I, I was totally blown away. But then the, the minute we walked into the, to the prom, she dumped me at the door. She took a hike. And I thought, I think she's working me to work some other guy or something. So I, don't, I still don't know what the full story was, but we went to the prom. I go and she takes off. And so I, we were in a hotel ballroom thing, and I went out to the lobby to kind of feel sorry for myself or whatever when I'm walking around. And Sam Shepard was there. And I don't know if you know who Sam Shepard is, mm-hmm. but he was an actor and a playwright. And at the time, he was really big. He'd been in The Right Stuff, mm-hmm. the movie The Right Stuff. And he played uh, Chuck Yeager, the astronaut. And there he was. And, what? Uh, and See, I, I, would be, I would have been blown away by that. Totally. But I didn't know Anna Gunn was going to get Anna Gunn. So, but yeah. this, this is my weird life. I have all these weird things. So I am out there. And he had, I had met him with my dad once. So I went, hey, I'm Dean. I met you. Oh, yeah. And I sat at my prom and sat in the lobby of this hotel with Sam Shepard hanging out. So I had a better prom than I would have had if I'd... uh... I actually wrote uh, two songs Mm -hmm. based off of a Sam Shepard play. Mm. Which one? Alive the Mind. Alive the Mind. I know that play. Because I was an actor, so I know all those Yeah, yeah. So I wrote wrote Alive the Mind and Mexico. And in the song Mexico, it's about... uh, this guy that that beats up this girl mm-hmm. and then tries to run to Mexico to hide from himself, but can't. You know, no matter where he runs, he can't hide from He's, himself. Yeah, based yeah. off of the whole, you know, uh, premise of that. Sure, that, uh, did that. I did that play in college, and they they uh, they said uh, we need somebody to write the music for it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote all the music for it and played it as the play was going on. Sure, so that's how that that happened. Me wow, and Christopher Crane. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Cool. So, and then how did you get into acting? What um, made you just say, hey, I mean, obviously, there, we all like play high school football or high, right. high school acting. What made you go to L.A. and go, I'm going to do this? 
Well, when I was in high school and I was writing these songs, I just didn't think of it as a viable option because I, I just thought I wasn't any good. I thought my dad was a genius. I thought everybody knew who he was. And I would never, I just didn't think I could do it. Sure, sure. And you know, so, I mean, the son of Muhammad Ali, everybody wants you to box. That's like, right. Oh, God. That's right. That's right. And yeah. then so I can imagine how, you know, Ali's daughter is this amazing boxer, but I'm, I can imagine that nobody even cares or wants to talk to her. They want to talk to her about her dad. It's, sure. It's a, so I just said, well, I'm going to go into film and acting because I loved movies and I loved acting. And I met these guys in high school and we would make these films together. And we, oh. and so we would do like the, 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 the early advent of video. We had some of the first video cameras and we were always jumping off of buildings and dragging behind trucks and, <laughs> you know, trying to recreate scenes in movies and, you know, we do stuff like we put firecrackers up by our faces and act like we were getting shot at and, you know, blood and all that stuff. So we made all these movies and stuff. And then I got really into film and I studied that in college. I studied film and theater and I did bunches of plays. I've done Shakespeare, everything else. And then, um, but I just felt like it was a whole lot of work. I mean, I really, every time I did it, I, I remember dreading going to rehearsals, dreading, you know, oh my gosh, doing a play. It was so much work. And then I'd pick up the guitar and it just felt freeing and fun. And When you did act, were you a, were you a method actor? Did you, like Stanislavski, did you, what did you, did you? Well, I mean, what was your I method? studied all those things. Okay. I studied every kind of thing or whatever. But it occurred to me very early on that some of the greatest actors didn't study. Oh. Some of the greatest actors just did it. And I just realized, I started thinking, the real key is who pretends the best. Uh, you know, like like a kid will just right. dive in and pretend and sure. believe that they're an astronaut or whatever. And so I just started kind of applying my own kind of thing to it where I felt like I'm just going to, for this moment, believe I'm this thing, you know? So, and I'm not going to let you just, you know, skim over this like uh -huh. you didn't really accomplish anything <laughs> acting because you did. Okay. So what was it like to do a scene with uh, James Gandolfini? Oh, that's really cool. That's good. How do you know this stuff? <laughs> um, well, so I've been in Nashville quite a while. This is in the middle of my life there. And... Um, I, uh, I'd been a songwriter and a singer, and I w had lost a couple of record deals, and I just, you know, I went through a, a, a couple of really dark periods in my life where I didn't know what to do with myself. I'd lost record deals. I thought, I've used up everybody on Music Row. I've used up everybody in Nashville, and now nobody, you know, we get this idea, not to, I'll come back to that in just a second, but we get this idea that, you know, somebody's got to let us be a singer. Somebody's got to let us be a right. songwriter. And if they don't sign me, then I'm nothing. If they don't hire me, then I'm nothing. Right. But I think the internet and like your podcast, which is amazing, and all of these these outlets and venues for creativity prove that it's not about getting somebody to let you do anything. Right. Be creative, blossom. You know, the flower doesn't look at the flower next to it and say, oh, well, that one's doing better than me. <laughs> right. That right. one's getting more rain than I am. This one's getting more sunshine than I am. They just blossom. So that's what that's been my philosophy of recent years. But I went through this really dark period and somebody said, do you want to audition for a movie? And I don't even remember how that came about, but somebody asked me if I want to audition for a movie and it was called uh, The Last Castle. Mm -hmm. And they were going to shoot this movie here and it was with Robert Redford and James Gandolfini and Mark Ruffalo was in that movie and some really huge people who later became huge had sure. smaller roles in that movie. And so they set up this audition that I could go to and it was a lot of people. And I remember going the first time to the audition and thinking, this is the biggest massive um, 
screw up that I've ever seen in my life. Okay. Because <laughs> it was people with egos and like you're going up to the audition and already they they have signs painted with the director's name and it's parking only for this producer. And I thought, I see what this is already. It's sure. a big ego festival and, and the movie's secondary. So I go in and I'm reading the script and, and I can say this now, I think enough time has passed. I remember reading the script in the office and thinking, this is the worst thing I've ever read. I think this is a oh, joke. Wow. I thought this is so ridiculous. I remember skimming to the last part and just almost laughing out loud because it had these amazingly stupid things in it. And, um, but I'm, you know, hey, I'll do the movie. That'd be great. I remember while I was there, Trace Adkins came in and he was auditioning. And so apparently he didn't get the role because he wasn't in it. Mm -hmm. But um, I saw all these known people auditioning. So I went in and I auditioned. And then the director starts improving with me and saying, you know, okay, now pretend you're on the stand in a trial. And I'm the, I'm, um, um, deposing you is that what they call it or, or the, the district attorney that's yeah the district attorney's asking all these questions yeah, sure. and stuff so i'm sitting up there and he starts improving and then he starts going off on this tangent and cursing at me and then he goes off on this tangent and starts yelling racial slurs and then he starts telling me yell racial slurs yell racial slurs like wow. trying to get me to do it wow and did and you I, do it i did what he wanted because he's the director <laughs> but it, it had nothing to do with the role it was just all this weird stuff that he was doing and i remember looking over this is so funny i remember looking over at the casting lady and her making this face like this guy's a freak so anyway I thought it was really funny that she was kind of looking like that and he was doing all this but anyway but it got you a good role but it, it got, got you a speaking line yes yeah, so yeah, yeah. After, after this audition um, they, they called me back and I had to do another thing and then they called me back and they said you've got this really nice role and I, I would read this in the script. And this was this guy recurred through the whole movie. And he had some really good scenes. He had one really great scene where the warden... Um, oh, no, somebody's breaking him down. He's trying to not rat on these other people. And they break him down. And then he comes out and rats mm -hmm. on all these people. There were some great scenes, okay? Mm -hmm. And and as the movie would approach, they'd go, oh, no, they, we cut that scene. Oh. oh, no, no, we cut that scene. Oh, no, no, we cut that scene. No, 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 we cut that scene. And as the movie approached and approached and approached, I had six weeks on this movie. Six weeks, I had my own trailer, I had everything. And, I'm, and I, I got down to two words. I had two words in this movie. And those got cut out. And I'm on, so if you go to the, the DVD with the deleted scenes, I'm the first deleted scene, and you can hear my two words. They were disgraceful sir <laughs> oh and that was to uh, Gandolfini to Gandolfini so what, what was he like because mm. that, that was like right in the beginning or the middle of Sopranos yes or was it in the beginning or the middle I can't remember well I mean I guess I can tell these stories I don't know if you're supposed to tell these stories now but it's so long ago who cares right but um, he was kind of gruff he was introverted a bit you mm -hmm. know he wasn't like Tony Soprano but sure. he was just kind of introverted and I remember being on the in the, the first time I met him we were in the makeup trailer and he was um, telling the makeup person that he was going to go to Graceland because he wanted to see Graceland he'd never seen Graceland mm -hmm. and I had just been so I kind of half interrupted them and I said Oh, you gotta go. They just opened the kitchen because they didn't used to have the kitchen part open. <laughs> and I said, now the kitchen's open. You see where we made the banana sandwiches. And he looked at me like, who in the hell are you talking to me? Like he looked at me like, how dare you talk to me? I'm a, sh I'm, I'm a big shot. And and uh, and I kind of did like a, 
dry gulp and kind of went back to myself. And then, then he kind of became nice after that. But it was like the first initial thing was, don't talk to me. That's the, that you're not the first person that I've ever heard that said that he kind of had that type of response. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a comedian, uh, Lennon or something, something Lennon. Okay. But anyway, yeah, he said basically roughly the same thing. Yeah. His, his response was the, the you know, kind of harsh at first, and then, then he kind of chilled out for a second, and right. it was real nice. And that's kind of what happened, because I was just being friendly or whatever. So then I didn't see him for a day or two. I, I mean, I sat on that set for six weeks, and it was freezing. It was two degrees outside. And um, and then finally they did we did this big thing in a conference room or on a, a, a conference table in this place and I had to be there all day all day in this thing to say disgraceful sir from forty different angles I had oh to say I had to say that line thirty times and mostly because the director had no plan to be oh, honest no vision just, so he'd go like what if we set up over there what about this and I remember people going no no just no and talking to him and and they were making it up on the spot they were just making it all up on the spot you That's- know. It was crazy terrible. it was so terrible money just going up sorry i shouldn't say it well maybe it's gone you know but um but sitting around that table everybody was there so long we just start talking so he started talking he started opening up and um he was kind of gruff but he was a semi-nice guy i come to find out while we're doing this that he didn't like it he felt like he i shouldn't maybe shouldn't say that but i, I think he didn't want to have done the movie, you know, sure, sure. Um, he felt like there was a lot of military dialogue and he wasn't getting it or nailing it, you know, and, and I just think he was frustrated about the movie. What about Robert Redford? Um, Robert Redford, I didn't spend much time around. I saw him a couple of times, a few times. He was um, just quiet to himself, not real social to other people. Nice, but just to himself, sure. probably trying to keep the role to himself. I actually acted with him from... I was up on a wall being a guard, and he was down below, and we had to do a couple things back and forth, but they didn't use any of that. Oh, wow. They, this this movie was full of... If you watch the DVD deleted scenes, you'll see they shot hours of stuff that was never used, because there was no plan. Was the deleted scenes better than the actual movie? Uh, they're more interesting. <laughs> they're more interesting. Because what I feel like when I'm watching this movie is I watched it forever. You know, I'd watch it, and a thousand times in the movie, I'd say, that's, there's no way that would be... that if They're in a prison, sure. and like people are wearing jewelry and stuff, and you're going... What? what? I mean, you know, yeah, like what? all through the movie, you're going, what? No, <laughs> what? This, you know, things that would never happen. Um, the final scene when they take over the prison, you, you, I mean, I, I was laughing out loud because it's helicopters landing and, you know, raising the flag over the prison. And you're just laughing like, what is happening? That is crazy. So silly, you know. Oh, my gosh. So, so was that the last time you ever did any acting? Um, no, I've done a couple of things since then, and then I, I, um, I've been hosting a television show that's on RFD, so I, I guess it's, that's hosting, but I did some um, improv stuff on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, done, I've done other little things. I've done a couple of plays and stuff. I did a, a play that they did here. Uh, it's a sta- it was a stage reading for a play that they were... I, I, acted, I got to act with Fred Thompson in that, the late oh, Fred Thompson. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I, I'm not an I'm not an actor per se. I'm I'm I think I'm more of a I don't know what I am. I'm a I'm a Renaissance man. Well, you know that's that's <laughs> you know. But you're not don't like once again. You're not the only person that has has said that. I don't I don't like putting labels on things. Mm-hmm. Why can't we just be entertainers? Right. That's you what know? I'm. That's right. Uh, if we want to if we want to write a country song, we'll write a country song. If we want to do a country show, we'll do that. If we want to act, we'll do that. If we right. want to you know paint, we'll do that. Why should does there have to be labels? Right. Why you know. Well, let me just tell you real quickly. When I was, when I lost my third record deal, and I was approaching my forties, um, 
I just decided at some point, I had a really dark period in my life. I, I went from record deals and publishing deals to um, having to get normal seven, eight dollar an hour jobs and just keep my head above water. So mm-hmm. um, I had some real struggles. I started a company that, that um, the investors pulled out halfway into just the startup of the company. So I had a bunch of rough spots and rough Is that patches. the publishing company? It was a company that was like an entertainment company. I could see the ahead to where this all was headed. Mm-hmm. And I said I wanted to open a company that would break artists in every way except radio. Okay. So I had this idea mm-hmm. of internet and all these things and whatever. And um, we had a two-year plan and, and a, a, a group of investors who didn't really understand the entertainment business. Gotcha. So we got halfway into that, and they pulled all their promises back six months into the deal, and it really <sighs> uprooted my life and uprooted a lot of things. But what I decided during this period and during the record deal loss is I said, um, I'm just going to stop saying I'm not going to be happy until this magic thing happens. This magic thing will happen, and then I'll be happy. I'll get a record deal. I'll be happy. I'll sell a million records. I'll be happy. I'll I'll be a star. I'll be happy. It's hard, though. And, it's right. It's so hard. freaking hard. It's like a drug addiction. It is. Right. It is absolutely like that. Entertainment is like a drug addiction. And I actually watched a documentary. I'm a big documentary guy. But I was watching about how... When you sing or you perform and people applaud and they mm-hmm. say your name, you know, entertainers more so than anybody else in the world. You know, you go to work at, at the dentist's office, people don't applaud. Sure. If you do your job, people don't say, you're the greatest thing that ever lived. And, and they don't say your name. Or, you're so, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that is like a drug. And what it does is it, it actually produces the same chemicals in the brain. Dopamine? Uh, yeah, that, um, and that um, drugs do. So... When you get a high from a drug, it's very similar to a high from hundreds of people telling you you're great, applauding, wow. people screaming your name. You know, none of us can, I can't imagine what it's like to be Elvis or Garth Brooks where every second of your day is being freaked out over and celebrated. Or, or, or take it to another level and say, be Elvis and all the, the next day you're not. You're not. So that's why you see a lot of entertainers getting into drugs, getting into bad habits, because they're trying to sustain the high. They're mm. trying to sustain the thrill. So they're trying to keep that up feeling, you know. So basically what you're sitting here telling me is uh, I'm going to be living a life of misery for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but I was for a while because I was telling myself in my own head that I was a loser, that I had fallen, that I was nothing. Um, I was working jobs and I thought, well, I'm going to, something hit me one day and I said, I'm just going to get up and do what I love each day. And I'm going to make this minute happy and this hour happy and this afternoon happy and this day happy. And I'm going to make myself happy one day at a time. The old phrase, one day at a time. Sure. And then, um, if I don't ever achieve the big goal, at least I'm not living misery to misery until something happens. So we need to go to Artist Anonymous. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I said, I'm a recovering artist. So I thought, what do I love as much as music? I'm going to do something else that I can love as much as music. And it became dogs. Animals and dogs, are, are they bring something out in me. You are the dog whisperer. I'm the dog whisperer. You are. So, so, so how, you know, and... and I know this to be true because uh, we really got to know each other about ten years ago, uh-huh. uh, and and you were you you were and are huge into helping dogs or and helping uh, people with their dogs and, mm-hmm. and and getting them to 
you are the dog whisperer. How, how did you know that you had that gift? Um, I've had dogs since the day I was born, and I always just had an affinity for them. I communicate, not communicate, it's not psychic or anything weird. <laughs> I, I <laughs> speak <me>. dog. <laughs> right. But I, I, I did start, I just had a fascination for reading about them, learning about them, knowing about them. Mm. Um, and I just always had dogs for the longest time. So uh, I thought when I was trying to decide how can I pay my bills, how can I keep my electricity on if it's not music? And I thought, well, I love dogs as much as I love music. So I said, well, I can start making that into a living. I, and I thought, how? Because I want my every day to be happy. Sure. And I knew that if I did certain things or worked in a pet store or something, I wouldn't make every day happy. Excuse me. So I started researching about training, and I realized you don't have to have a college degree. You just have to know what you're doing. And then it hit me while I was developing this. I was teaching classes. I started working at dog facilities and and training places and boarding places and any place that would let me start teaching and working. And through trial and error, I got better. So you, you didn't have those skills, uh, those trained skills, if you were. Right. You were learning them. As I, you... I had an affinity for it and an instinct for it. Sure. But I didn't know how to put it into a teaching format. I had never okay. been a teacher before. Gotcha, gotcha. So I started working at facilities that would let me teach little classes, teach how to sit and stay and lie down and reading about it. And then that grew into this thing. Long story short, I would teach these classes and people would come for two or three times and they'd quit. They'd stop because nobody wants to go and stand there for hours and they have lives and they just, they drift off and mm -hmm. their dog becomes a low priority. But I thought if I can go to people's houses and show results in an hour, people will pay for that and they will want it. And Absolutely. Because they want results. They don't want to learn how to sit and sure. lie down. So people began calling me, my dog's chewing the carpet, my dog's peeing on the carpet, my dog's... And I knew that I had a thing for this. So long story short, I just started doing it. It exploded. It started growing. I started... I, I, I vets started calling me to teach them. I started going teaching seminars. I would go, oh, that is so cool. I'd go into vets' offices, and they would all tell me the same thing. They would say... At vet school, they teach us all the physiology, just like a doctor. We know about the diseases and the medicine and the things. Nobody teaches us the psychology or what motivates them. And so, you knew that. You knew what exactly. It's just an instinct. Yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, like some people are good with girls or whatever. Or some people <laughs> good with people or some people have a good rapport, whatever. I just had a good rapport with dogs. And I knew that they weren't speaking words in English. They were speaking something else. Mm -hmm. So I started basing this all on that. And I would watch training videos and I would say, this works instantly. This doesn't work. This is stupid. This is based on reality. And I would take these pieces. And anyway, it's, it, I've got it down to kind of a... Science. I can go into any house. There's no dog I can't help in some way. Um, What's the hardest breed to teach? It's not the breed. It's the individual. Um, lots of breeds have, oh, wow. have um, you know, they're prone to things. A uh -huh. German Shepherd is prone to shepherding or guarding. A, a Basset Hound is prone to napping, you know, whatever. Uh -huh. They all have these things. Like, I, I find beagles to be difficult because their sense of smell is stronger than any other dog. They, they get distracted. They can't focus. Do you, do you, do you, are you of the belief that, uh, that uh, there are some breeds out there that are just innately dangerous? No. I think that... Um, this is a myth. If you want to open up this can of worms, let's take pit bulls, for example. Long before there was dog fighting, well, when there was a, such a huge explosion of dog fighting, all these problems with dogs, pit bulls were considered um, family dogs and babysitters for children because they were the warmest, most loving breed. Um, Petey from the Little Rascals was a pit bull. Okay. Um, they, were, they were great family dogs. But... 
they love their owner, they love their family so much that if you train that dog in the opposite direction, they will love you so much they'll die for you. They'll Ooh. love you so much they'll kill for you. They will not stop in their desire to please you. Oh, okay. okay. So that combined with um, breeders, it, disreputable people, dog fighters, drug dealers, whatever, would breed for the most vicious qualities. So they would say, well, this is the most aggressive dog, and this dog is psychologically screwed up. Let's breed those two, and that'll make a great killer in the ring. Oh. Right? So you can imagine one litter of bad genetics with viciousness creates 8, 10, 12 puppies uh, with, sure. with bad genetics and bad. And then they'll train them from birth to be fighters, to be fighters, to be killers, because they'll try to please their owner so much that they'll do it. Then the failures in the ring, right, mm -hmm. the ones that don't fight well or fight kind of well or that they're tired of or, or, or they're, they're, they just don't pr produce like they used to. Sure. They'll run out in a van and just drive down the street and drop it off in the street. Oh. Or they'll just dump it out in the road or they'll just dump it out in the field or they'll just dump it out. And this becomes a problem by the hundreds, by the thousands. So then these dogs breed with each other out in the field with no kind of anything, whatever, the worst of the worst of the worst out in the world, or they attack a kid or they get loose and hurt somebody, or they get taken to the dog pound by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and put down or, or, so or what do we do to outlaw this? What do we do to make this completely just... Well, here's, here's my opinion about all of it. The education's part of it, and educating people and spaying and neutering dogs is all part of it. But it's just like everything else in life, saying, hey, be good. Hey, don't do that. Hey, sure. don't download music. It's illegal. Well, good luck. Right? Yeah, right, right, <laughs> okay. right, right, right. I think the problem is that the punishment is not severe enough for animal abuse. That, and so that was my point. Right. What, what, what do, how does legislation get involved, or will they, or is it just I not wish that I, important? I wish I knew. I think people are adamant and work really hard about it and try and try and try i don't think there's enough money in it there's not enough payback in rescuing dogs and saving dogs and doing what's best for dogs i mean do enough michael vicks go to jail for no this kind of thing no and michael vick got past it all and is glorified and paid millions of dollars and doing just fine mm. and that's the problem i mean he went to jail for a short period to try to make an example of him but even that for for the crimes he committed mm -hmm. They, it was a very small punishment. Oh, it was a very small punishment. In, in general, in Tennessee, which is among the worst, I, I, I hate to say, but the southern states are among the worst. Um, Why do you think that is? I think it's just... Um, Backward maybe, thinking? Maybe mentality, maybe consciousness. I can tell you, you go to California, the laws are... I mean, in California, it's illegal to chain your dog more than two hours. Oh, wow. Okay? In Tennessee, your dog can live on a chain. Nobody that's live, okay. on, live a on a chain. Your dog can as long as there is a cover and water, there are no rules. They consider that humane, humane treatment of a dog. Oh my gosh. Um I have many, many times I've by the thousands. I mean if you want to get deeper into this, you can go to a dog pound and ask somebody to start talking to you and, and you'll be astounded. Walk up and down those aisles and look at the tr the the lives thrown away like trash. But you know, I don't mean to get negative or off on a tangent here, <laughs> but it really comes down to this. If you're gonna Kill a dog, torture a dog, beat a dog, and somebody's going to give you a $50 fine. What's the deterrent? Yeah. Or they're going to come out to your house, they're going to find your dog dead on the end of a chain after a lifetime of suffering, and do nothing. They just pick up the dog, or they throw the dog in the trash, and that's it. Because nobody, uh. nobody's enforcing it. There's no money. There's no money. There's no motivation in, in, 
enforcing it. That's horrific. It is. The, the reason other things happen is because there's money in it. There's a reason to stop it all. You know, if somebody's walking around killing people, well, that, that's bad for business. Right. That's bad for tourism. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and on the opposite end, raising and running a fighting ring is huge money, enormous money in that. So Michael Vick had a million dollar enterprise. He had a house, he had property, he had, you know, rings, he had mm-hmm. fighting equipment. And, and there's a documentary where he walks around that property and tells you what he did to those dogs. And when you watch that documentary and hear it, you hear it come out of his mouth, what he did to those dogs. Mm-hmm. This is an evil, horrific person. And, I, and let me tell you that after all of his apologies... Is this post or pre? Um, uh, going to jail. He, after going to jail, part of his amendment thing, or, or I think to get his career back, mm-hmm. he walked around the property and showed what he did and acted like he was crying and said, I'm so sad and I'm so sorry and I would never do that again. So you thought the, the, the remorse was, was not genuine? I'll tell you why I think it was not genuine. Okay. He was banned from ever owning a dog again. That's part of his condition of, uh, of his parole. Okay. Um, he kept complaining publicly in interviews, my daughters can't have a dog, my children can't ever have a dog because of what I did, and I think that's wrong, they should be able to have a dog. And then he kept saying he wanted a dog. Mm-hmm. So on social media one day, someone picked up on the fact that there was a picture of Michael Vick in his home, and in the background on the counter was a box of milk bones. So somebody picked up on the fact that he got a dog somehow and was hiding it. So someone somehow got pictures of him. Michael Vick, imagine how intelligent this is, went to PetSmart and took classes with his dog. And someone took pictures on their cell phone of of Michael Vick after all of this. And he didn't go back to jail? And he didn't go back to jail. Nobody nobody pushed the issue. So let me tell you, let me follow up with this. His big complaint was, my daughter wants a dog. I just want a dog for my kids. The breed of dog that he was at PetSmart with, trying to take lessons... Don't say it. ...was a Belgian Malinois, which are bred for security. They're bred... To kill their police dogs. They use them for hardcore police work. They are intense, intense work dogs. He doesn't want that dog for his daughter. Mm-mm-mm. And that's after everything. So, anyway, you, you should go to, there's a place called Best Friends Animal Sanctuary in Utah. It's the largest sanctuary in the country, and that's where most of the Michael Vick surviving dogs went. And there's a book about those dogs. And if you ever read about those dogs or see the videos or the stuff of what those dogs went through, you can't look back again. This guy's bad news. He's very, very bad news. Does he still... I don't follow him. So does he Does he? I don't know. play football anymore? I, I don't know. I know he went back to a multi-million dollar career. And I know that he um, was just complaining about what a bomb deal he got. But well, How ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's really ridiculous. So I, I've, I have strong feelings about that. I didn't mean to get off on a tangent, but the point of this is I, I developed a time in my life where I developed dog training because I needed something to save my sanity because I thought I just, I was at my bottom emotionally. And then while I was training dogs for a while, I was doing all this stuff. And um, through a weird series of events, my sister and I were separated when I was very young and we were brought back together in her 40, in our 40s. Oh, wow. And when we Did were, you know she was your sister? Yeah. But, okay. But it's a long, that's a long separate story. But my mother went one direction with my sister. My dad went one direction with me. Okay. And so we were separated. And then when we came back together late in life, 
um, I was talking to my sister and I had, at the same time we came back together, I found this um, song in my old catalog. Sometimes as a songwriter, you go back and you listen to songs or tapes or work sure. tapes, you know this, that you haven't looked at in years. And I found this old work tape of a song I'd written. Um, and the, the song was about a fighter, which would be of interest <laughs> hey, to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. But um, my friend, Sean, Sean Patrick McGraw, and I wrote this song. And the concept of the song was this guy's in a bar. It's a story song. Guy's in a bar, and he's sitting next to a guy. And this guy is sitting there. He's down and out and drinking, starting to drink because his wife has left him, his woman has left him, and he's going to go down this path of drinking. And the guy next to him is an old Golden Gloves uh prize fighter mm -hmm. and this prize fighter is an old drunk in the bar and he starts telling this guy you know you don't want to end up like me basically is the story of the song okay and and it comes around it says you, you he the hook of the song is you ain't a loser till you stop getting up okay okay so that's the whole thing of the song but as i'm reading the lyrics and listening to this old work tape that had never been recorded the, the lyrics are speaking to me in my life wow. because i had stopped getting up okay i quit I quit life, said, I'm just going to go teach dogs and whatever. And when I heard it, it was like a, just a, a light bulb went off. And I told my sister about this. And she said, you need to be doing music, even if there's no result. And she talked me into it. And she lifted me up. And she made me hope in myself again and said, just, just make something. Just go make something. Wow. So I went and made a little record. And then I thought, well, you know, Chris Christopherson was a Golden Gloves boxer. And he's a friend of my family's. I did not know that. Yeah. And That's I, pretty cool. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to ask him to be in the video and play the old prize fighter. And he said, sure. That's cool. Why? I don't know. But so I have a video, a song, a record. <laughs> and I, I raised the money myself. I made this thing. I, I'm very proud of it. I think it, it's beautiful. Um, the record's for sale. You can get it at DeanMillerOfficial.com or, <laughs> or on iTunes. But um, it's called Till You Stop Getting Up. And, and it's just my... It's my story and the metaphor of a boxer. Sure. Do, do you, I, know, I, I hate to ramble on and on, but if you want to hear a side story that's beautiful... I would know, love to. I, I, I'm sure you're a spiritual guy. You believe in God. And, absolutely. And I absolutely believe in God. And absolutely. I absolutely believe... We've had in-depth conversations, in conversations about this. Yes. Yeah. And I believe he guides us in ways we don't even know. But the older I get and the more I'm open to it, the more it's just glaringly obvious he's around us all the time. Sure. So when Chris... Christofferson agreed to do this video. He and his wife were shooting Dolphin Tale 2 in Clearwater, Florida. And they said, if you come down here on a weekend when we're not shooting, we'll go anywhere you want and shoot the video if you do it here. So I got one guy, video equipment, me, the whole concept. And I said, I came up with a concept where we didn't have to go anywhere. Okay. So we went down to, we would just sit in one place and he could sit on a stool in the bar and just do the, do the video. So I look online, I'm finding all these bars. I found this one little bar and it looked dingy and, and it was near where they were. And I said, that's the bar. That'll be right. I'll just pick it blindly. Called and asked if we could do the video there. They said, sure. I arrive at the bar, you know, an hour before Chris does so we can set up and get everything ready. I pull up to the bar and the building is a mural. Every wall, all four walls in the front of the, bureau, of the bar is a mural of dogs. Oh, my gosh. And they're all adopted dogs, abandoned dogs, dogs that were loved by people. Each dog is a real dog. They each have a tag that with their real name on it. There are hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dogs on every wall of this bar on the outside. Okay? Uh-huh. 
they are having a dog adoption event in the courtyard of the bar when I arrive while I'm shooting the video. If you don't think God if you don't think God is speaking to uh, to me on this day, right? I mean, I call my sister, I'm almost in tears, right? Because this is so I go in, Chris arrives, he gets there, he starts, he says to me, Did you write this song about me? And I said, No, what are you what are you talking about? And he said, he said, This is a story that happened to me. What? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, this, you know, you ain't a loser till you stop getting up. And I said, what are you talking about? So I'd written this song 10 years earlier. Uh-huh. Right? I didn't, no connection. He tells me this story about when he was a Golden Gloves boxer. He was living in Los Angeles. He was 18, 19, 20 years old. I don't know how old he was. Very young. And he said he won his first bout and got a ton of attention for it. He was a young, good-looking guy, stud, and he was winning his matches, and he won this first big match that he had, uh-huh. and he made the papers. So he said, I started getting really cocky and really full of myself. You know, everybody, I'm going to be a champ, and everybody's going to love me, and I'm it. <laughs> so his third fight, his, he gets in the ring, and the other fighter is a Mexican fighter, and he said, the second round, this guy punched me in the liver so hard, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> he said, I thought I would die. And he said, I, I went down. And he said, but I started getting up. He said, but from the time I, got, I took that liver punch, I had quit. Oh. He said, inside, I had given up. And he said, I got up and I, lost, I went on to lose that, that match. He said he was standing around watching other fighters after that. And a Mexican kid came up to him and said, I can tell uh, you're not a Mexican. And he said, why? And he said, because a Mexican will never quit. Ooh. A Mexican will never quit. And he said from that... Unless you're Roberto Duran. Right, exactly. Okay, right, exactly, right. <laughs> he said, but it did something to him where he said... "If well, Actually, you... he's Panamanian. Oh, right, true. Okay, right, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, but he said internally, he decided basically... If you quit yourself, if you give up, that's it. You're done. You ain't a loser till you stop getting up. Wow. And he said, I thought you wrote this about that, that because that changed his life. In his whole life, he said, I will never give up. Had you ever heard that story I'd before? I'd never heard that story before. I never knew a thing about it. Man, he and he's one of the coolest dudes ever on ever, the face of the planet. Ever on the face of the planet. He's my hero. He was a Golden Gloves boxer. He's a helicopter pilot. He's a songwriter. He's a singer. An he's actor. A, he's a movie star. Yeah. He's a, you know, he's everything. He's everything, everything. And now family man, nine kids, wife, whatever. I mean, come on. It, 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 he's every, he's lived a million lifetimes in one. Yeah. If you could be anybody or have a career, that would be a that great be career, career to right. emulate. Yeah. Right. What are you? I'm a movie star, rock star, songwriter, uh, boxer, what? Um, yeah. Helicopter pilot. Whatever I need to be. West Point cadet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Oxford scholar, Rhodes scholar. Yep. Studied at Oxford. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it, it, one of the things that blew my mind the first time I ever heard it was that he wrote that uh, uh, the Janis Joplin song. Yes. I was like, what? Well, who was the first person to record and have a hit with that song? Uh, Roger Miller. I did not know that. Yeah, my, Chris Christopherson had never had a hit or never had any really big songs, uh-huh. and my dad recorded me and Bobby McGee. You are kidding me. And that is where it all began with me and Bobby McGee. I did not know it, that. It went to number eight on the country charts. So is it true that he flew, I mean, you may or may not know this, but that he flew a helicopter onto Johnny Cash? No, yes, Johnny Cash's property. And and that's true. He flew pit, a helicopter. To and then... pitch a tape. He didn't know Johnny at the time. Mm-hmm. And he rented a helicopter. He had, he had flown in Germany in the Army, and then he had had a job 
um, he would work songwriting and stuff, and then he would drive down to um, the Gulf of Mississippi, and I mean, uh, yeah, the Gulf, the Gulf, <laughs> and he would fly uh, oil rig workers out to the oil rigs on helicopters, fly them back and forth to to work on the oil rigs, and mm-hmm. then he would drive up to Nashville and pitch his songs and work his songs. That's crazy. So he was doing that for for a time, and um, but he went to pitch a song. The 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 myth is that he pitched Sunday morning going down on that trip, but it wasn't. He didn't. He doesn't remember the song, and Cash doesn't remember the didn't remember the song that he pitched. He thought this guy was just a freak, and, <laughs> and why is this guy landing on my property? And so someone once asked. Johnny Cash. Well, whatever happened to that tape Chris gave you? Because at the time, it wasn't like, Chris Christopherson is presenting me with a cassette. I'd better frame it. Sure. He, he said, I put it in a box with all the other freaks who give me tapes, you know. And, <laughs> and so he said, uh, I put it in a box. And he said, and I had this policy every month or so. When the box got full, I'd walk out on my deck and I'd throw them into the, into the lake. Because he lived on the lake. Oh, my god! And he said, so it's probably at the bottom of the lake with all those other tapes I threw in the lake. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So what was the first song you ever got cut? The first song I ever got cut. Um, this is the story of my life. I got a bunch of songs cut that would get cut and be the 11th song on a 10-song <laughs> album. So for a long time, I would get these cuts, and they'd call me, and they'd say, your song's on hold. Sammy Kershaw cut your song. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't make the album. That would, oh. that would happen to me over and over and over. So if it gets cut and it doesn't make the album, you don't get paid. Mm-mm. It gets thrown away. I would go track down some of these songs, though. I have a couple of them, like Joe Nichols I have. I would track down the song so I could have it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could say, this person cut my song. But I, um, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's on a shelf. It's not released. Oh, that sucks. Right. You could put out a... Well, I don't know if you could do that. I was going to say, you could put out a whole record no, of people that have... It, it, it still belongs to the record yeah, company, yeah. technically. But um, but anyway, so um, my first real cut that I got on my own just for writing and somebody pitching it to an artist was Trace Atkins. It was a song called um, I'm Gonna Love You Anyway. Oh. Oh, no, that's, that's not true. I'm sorry. Um, before that, um, Sean Camp and I used to write a lot together, and he had a deal on Warner Brothers. <laughs> what a talented dude. Talented dude. Oh, my god! Talent coming out of his pores. Absolutely. But he had a record deal on Warner Brothers, and he cut two of our songs. I remember that was about, what, 92? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was those were actually the first cuts I got. And then my first major artist was Trace Atkins. And then one of the really big deals to me was George Jones. When George Jones cut my song, I felt no like... No way. Yeah, I felt like I had arrived. Oh, that is yeah. awesome. I used to say I was... I got a gold record for that. It was my first gold record. And I used to say, I'm going to make a necklace of this and walk around because I have struggled for so long. I used to sit and wear this and go, by God, I did something in my life. You so know? so but being being Roger Miller's son didn't help you at all. It, it, it literally probably made things harder for you, maybe. It, here's what it does for you, for those who don't know. Everybody's curious. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants the meeting. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to write with you once or twice. Everybody wants to go to lunch. They want you to tell them Roger Miller stories. Oh, God. They want to talk. They they want to talk about their favorite Roger Miller songs. They want to talk about blah, 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 and all the, all the memories and all the stuff. And then they want to go, okay, what do you do? You write songs or something? Okay, go play something. And then there's there's hardly any way you can push those memories and ideas out of the way to even hear your stuff clearly. Did and, you ever think about like just not even using the last name Miller? I, I never really thought about that. I, I just thought that would be... I mean, I used to say, 
for a while, when I had my first record deal, I would say, like, let's not talk about my dad. Yeah. But then I realized it sounded really ungrateful. It oh, sounded... Really, oh, because oh. I use Jacob Dylan as an example. You know, he was in The Wallflowers, mm -hmm. and he would do this thing in his contract. He said, if anyone mentions, mentions Bob Dylan, the interview's over. If anyone mentions Bob Dylan, I will not play the date. Mm -hmm. he, made, he had these concrete rules, and it just made him look like a jerk. Yeah. But he was just trying to get started. Right. Um... And people just wouldn't let it, it's not anybody's fault. It's just even now, like, you know, I think people perceive me as a kid. I'm 50 years old, but I'll post something on Facebook and they'll go, oh, you're just chip off the old block like oh, your daddy. And you God. just, oh, why don't you sing more dang me? Why don't you sing more songs like your dad? They can't get past it. Right. But but I, I came to understand that music is associated with their lives, with their memories, you know, King of the Road or whatever is their high school song is sure. there is there it's their memories right right and so then to say put all that away and just listen to me with a clean slate is absurd yeah. so i just embrace it and do whatever i can do the best i can well, I, I saw it happen to the haggard boys yeah you know so it's like yeah they could never ever get out of you'll never you they'll just never it's not that you try to get past it all you can do is do your thing over here and if somebody wants to hear it they can hear it but i don't know how you'll ever get get right. past it some people do like you know some people i mean like like lucas nelson is in a, a, he has his own band he's willie's mm -hmm. da, willie's son and willie's daughters sing and um but to their credit they just do their thing they don't tout their dads or or dis, disclaim their dad they don't claim or disclaim their dad yeah. they just do their thing and that's the best you can do yeah yeah, yeah. uh so let um, me your song, your album, Platinum, is that one of the ones that you just went out there and put out on your own? No, that was on a record company called Koch Records, which was um, owned by... Koch was a larger label, a distributor, and a jazz label that decided to open a country division. Okay. So for two years, they had this, this label here, uh -huh. and they signed me to that deal. Um, they said, if you can make a record for X number of dollars, we'll just let you make it. Because one of my things was, I just want to produce. Nobody would ever let me produce my own stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to produce. So they said, okay, if you can keep it under this budget, you can produce. I said, no problem. So they thought, oh, he's going to turn in something crappy or self-indulgent. Oh, something. God, it's awesome, too. Yeah, well, they thought he's going to be an arty, arty guy or whatever. So I make this record, and I turned it in. They went, whoa, 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 whoa wait, wait, wait. I think there's hits here. <laughs> <laughs> so they said, okay... Um, plan B, let's put a bunch of money into promoting this. Mm -hmm. So I was like, holy crud, yes. So they, we decided to shoot a video. We picked a single. We were cranking up for this. We, they hired a director. We flew to New York. We did a video, which is still online. It's called Hard Love. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we went to video. We shot, we shot the video. We came back, and two weeks before the release of the single, they shut the label the, the New York division shut the Nashville division of the label okay. closed it and said, but that was the beginning of your pr producing career yes and you do have a producing career you're, you're, you're doing some big things yes I um, well I started um, using my production you know it never occurred to me to go try to hawk my wares to people but I started saying to anybody who would listen I'll produce you if you could pay for the cost of the producing and for my time I'll produce you I'll produce you and I started just having no shame about it I'd produce anybody sure. everybody I'd, I'd produce I like used to, I used to say I'll produce a tree stump if you pay me <laughs> I mean I, people consider that selling out I consider it applying my ability I, I look at things as a challenge if somebody can't sing and I mm -hmm. can make them sound like a million bucks and put it all together that's just craft you know sure it's making me better for when a really truly great artist comes along I 
I, people are going to make a record. They're going to make a record with me or without me. Sure. I, I will give them the best possible experience and the best possible product. So I started producing. And then um, this you, is... You realize now you're going to have a ton of people reaching out to you. I hope so. Going. <laughs> I'm totally available. My, my, production, my production website is separate from my other website. My production website is deanmillerentertainment.com. And if you just email me there, I'll... I'll I'll answer any questions. So you're hearing it here first. If if you if you've got the money, he has the time. Come come go to Dean Miller, and he will produce you. <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, I don't take everybody, right? um, <laughs> but yes, you know, just write to me, and we'll see what we can do. But um, there's plenty of examples of my work on there. There's plenty of examples of people I've worked with. But um, what started happening was, you know, God prepares you for stuff. Yes, and absolutely. You, and you think. You think God is being mean to you, but he's loving you. So I liken it to when, when you're, you're a father, I'm not a father, but when you, when you take your kids to kindergarten and first grade and second grade and third grade, and they say, I don't want to go to school, I don't want to, and you say, but you have to. And it may hurt your heart to make them go to school, or maybe they have some bad experiences in school, and it's really hard, but that's part of what makes them better people, more well-rounded and prepared for life. Mm-hmm. So... What I realized is after producing all these people for several years, an opportunity came along this last year to produce a tribute album to my father. So we're halfway into the process of producing this tribute album to my father. And as we started making it, these enormous artists came forward in honor of my dad. Mm -hmm. And I was able to say with my partner, Cole Wright, who's also working on the thing, we would say, look, we can... Let, we'll give you the budget. You can cut it any way you want, or we can produce the track for you, or we can help you with it or not help you with it or whatever. Long story short, a lot of these people that you would never believe in the million years would give me the shot have said, sure, just come in and you produce it. Okay. And I have produced these tracks for some of the biggest artists in music. Can we hear some of the names? Um, you know, Dolly Parton. Oh. Um, you know, um the, the the most gratifying thing was to go in and, and help produce vocals on Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard, one of the last things he ever recorded, oh, wow. um, doing interviews with Merle. We have one of the last interviews ever done with him. Christofferson, you know, working with him on the vocals was, to me, he's my hero. So Absolutely. it was just a dream. Um, you know, it's a, it's a long list of people that let me work with them. And um, so long story short, um, those hard times and the people that maybe didn't look like they were preparing me. I was, if I can produce some, some nightmare thing, I can certainly produce some of the greatest in the world. So. That is when you, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I believe all of those things, all of those trials and tribulations that you've gone through and all of those tests and all that yes. murky water you had to, 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 to swim your way out of, yes. it prepared you for that moment. Yes, yes, yes. So when I stood in the, in the studio and was able to, you know, I had the confidence to say to Merle, for example, Merle was getting a couple of lyrics wrong. Mm-hmm. So to be able to have the confidence to say, now, Merle, you know, can we go back? Because that word is not really what <laughs> when most people would be terrified to say wrong. Do it again. You know right, what I mean? Right, so, right. You know, I had the skills to finesse and be kind and nurture people. Sure, you know? sure. Anyway, I just uh, I don't mean to go on and on about that, but it's amazing how through these experiences, you become a better person, you know, you, by just, God, God just puts us through so much and so many trials and tribulations and however you want to look at that. 
And it, you are a better person if you use it as a tool as opposed to something to focus on and be bitter about. You know, I, I tell you, I feel like through our conversation uh, today uh, that, you know, it's like it's a, a lot of the things that you're saying I needed to hear. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really, really weird. Like some of these things, these, these little gold nuggets that you're throwing out at me, I'm like, wait a minute, golly. Uh, it's like you, you've gone through it and you're, you're, you're telling me the things that I need to hear right now. So what that tells me is this conversation is going to go out there and it's going to hit people that need to hear this as well. That's very sweet of you to say, but I just felt like for my own sanity, I had to learn to do it for the sake of doing it, not doing it for the results. Absolutely. Because if you're making music saying, you know, when this becomes platinum and I sell a million records, then I'll be somebody because everybody will like me and I'll be I'll be a king. Mm-hmm. That's the wrong reason to do anything. Right. Just I agree. Make it for the sake of making it. And if it becomes huge or for, you know, Vincent Van Gogh never sold a piece of art in his entire lifetime. Does that make him a bad artist? You know, he never made a dime. Right. His art. He died thinking he was a loser. He tried to kill himself. In fact, I think he was successful in the end. I don't know if that's how he died. I, I, I should know that. But, <laughs> but he, he was mentally ill and died thinking he was a failure. I damn sure cut his ear off. That's right. Yeah, you know. So do we, are we failures? No, we're just, you know, God is doing something different with us. Well, you know, and that's where I have, I've, Growing up and you know wanting to accomplish some of the things, I think that's where the the inner child and my the, the inner child's perspective of what success is, mm-hmm. you know, with, along with how I have come to view things as an adult, you know, it's like it's not about fame or fortune; it's about making art, and, right. and whatever that art takes you or wherever it takes you, that's that's that should be the ultimate goal that's it. you know and, and and none of the other things and especially that little inner child or whatever the outside is or the view people you know have toward you it needs to be meaningless and irrelevant that's right it should all come back to the art that's and right make it and if they come they come if they don't you're still an artist it, it doesn't devalue the thing you made or the thing you did if five people or five million look at it exactly it doesn't matter who's looking at it we can all point to a thousand examples of things that should have been successful. Sure. I can tell you a thousand singers that should have been stars. Right, right. But for whatever reason, they weren't. And then I can point to a thousand singers who are stars who should not be stars. Right, but, right. you know, I can't explain it. I don't know. It's just what it is. So their trip, you know, their, their mm-hmm. path that whatever God put them on is their trip. And to sit around and look at their trip and say, why isn't my trip like their trip? Sure. Is like sitting on an airplane and looking at a plane going to Dallas and I'm going to L.A. And I'm going, why is that plane going to Dallas? I don't understand. <laughs> why is that? I don't get it. I don't understand why that plane's going to Dallas. It right. makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. What a so, great comparison. It really is. It's just we're just on different trips. Sure. But we get our, our culture, especially in America, is very results oriented. Sure. If, if you applaud me and tell me I'm great, then I'm great. If I'm famous, you know, they talk to kids all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up? Famous. This is this new thing in our culture that's sick. Yes, I you agree. Know? I For agree. what? Nothing. I'm just going to be a Kardashian. Just right. look at me. I'm famous. Right. Well, I just, it's sad. It is. It it's is. Sad. So what, where, are you still working on the TV show? Uh, I was working on the TV show. I'm not going to work on this TV show anymore because this tribute album to my father is now growing into a television special. Okay. So I'm going to spend the next year doing building toward a television special and a DVD documentary 
through this album of and all these artists about my dad. Okay, and uh, and and give one more time all the places that people can find you on Facebook <laughs> and Twitter. And, okay, and uh, iTunes to buy the music. Um, Dean Miller Entertainment. If you want music business help or production or videos, we do that uh, or advice. Um, and then um, DeanMillerOfficial.com is my. Uh, my, 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 you know, albums and artist thing. And then my dog training is the dog counselor.com. I'm a counselor, Fantastic. a dog counselor. So the dog counselor.com, Dean Miller entertainment.com, Dean Miller official.com and iTunes. And we need to, we need to get a posse together and go to Michael Vick's house. And, and I'd love to, <laughs> that guy needs to go, man. It's, it's okay. You know, it's like, you know, I, it's it's like if he's got he almost had us he was apologetic and everybody said that's so wonderful so wonderful here I am with a new dog it's an attack dog and look mm. at that okay no you're done yeah we're, we're we're gonna go get him all right everybody uh, this was Dean Miller and Dream Big <laughs> thank you man thank you man that is so nice I appreciate you oh. having me here hey y'all thanks for listening to the About Nashville podcast. Please support us by going to iTunes and subscribing, rating, and leaving a review. See y'all next week.